Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here. I woke up, I told the early service, I, I woke up about five or so and laying in bed and started thundering and lightning and realized rain was coming. I thought, oh man, this is a great day to roll over and go back to sleep. And then it hit me, I couldn't. I got to come preach, you know, so I'm glad you didn't roll over and go back to sleep. I want to tell you I'm glad that you're here. I want you to take your Bible this morning, and I want you to turn to me probably a familiar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, okay? Uh, probably you've heard me and others speak on this uh, chapter, and the verse we'll be concentrating on a lot of times. But if you're like me, you've probably forgotten what you heard. Someone asked me on Monday, what did you preach on Sunday? And I have to think about it. So uh, I think maybe some of the things that we'll be saying you've probably heard before. But I think nonetheless, we need to hear them again. And I'll tell you what I, my, my theme today. It's baby dedication. So I hope our parents made it back. Uh, they may have skipped out the back and went home. I don't know. But uh, I hope they did. And what I'm going to say is it applies to them. If you're, how many of you are grandma and grandpas? Bunch of old, well, we got a bunch of old codgers. Uh, what, I, what I'm going to say, I hope, applies to you, okay? It's going to apply to parents, grandparents, but also my, my intent this morning is what I say applies to every Christian, okay? Every follower of Christ. And my, my theme or my goal this morning is to challenge you to stay engaged in the Christian life, to, uh, to stay in gear, to take the uh, transmission and stick it in gear and stay in gear. You know, someone has described the Christian life as an upward climb to glory, and I kind of like that. Uh, things are not always easy. Uh, we have our challenges. Uh, everything in life doesn't go uh, perfectly when you become saved, so life sometimes is a challenge, and so my goal is to keep us engaged in that. I remember uh, a pastor one time, one time saying that, that it's critical that Christians stay engaged or in gear in the Christian life because if they ever shift into neutral and try to coast along, they lose their energy, they lose their power, and they begin to kind of roll backwards. And I like that as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always on a mountaintop. That doesn't mean that everything's always supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, does it? But it does mean that there are some fundamentals. There are some basics that you and I have to do regularly, consistently, persistently to, to keep growing in the Christian life. I mean, if you don't read your Bible, guess what? If you don't pray, guess what? If you don't uh, attend church and be involved in a small group, guess what? We begin to struggle a little bit. And so my intent today is to challenge you to be engaged. Uh, I had the joy. I've been with my wife a long time, gang. I've been we're going on 42 years of marriage. She chased me for five years before that, or kind of maybe I was chasing her. But I've been together, we've been together, you know, for 47 years. And I had the privilege, I think it was a privilege, of teaching my wife how to drive. 
And I'll tell you, first of all, it's a whole lot easier to teach teenagers than your girlfriend, okay? But I had a, a little VW bug. Every time I see a little beetle driving by, something happened, my, my heart is strangely warm, you know. And I had this, this bug, this VW bug. And man, I, I had big, back then, as big speakers as you could get in the back. I had uh, in the front an 8-track player. How many of you remember 8-track? How many of you don't have a clue what an 8-track is? Okay, yeah. But it was this thing before tapes, which is now CDs. And uh, I took my, she wanted to learn how to drive. And so I took my wife, that was back in the days of the stick shift. You know what I'm talking about? No automatic back then. And so I took my wife and I got her in the, the, the bug. And I said, all right, Paula, here's how you do it. You, this is called a clutch. This is called a brake. And this is called an accelerator. And you begin pushing on the accelerator, you begin easing off the clutch, and the car engages, and it goes forward. You got it? Oh, yeah, I got it. So she did this, and we start, you know, like that. I said, no, 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 no. You got to go it slow. And so we finally started going, but she kept pushing the clutch in. And I said, don't do that. Because when you push the clutch in, you're in neutral. And you don't go forward, you begin to roll back. Well, obviously it took a while and our relationship survived. But in a way, that's kind of the way it is in the Christian life, isn't it? You can't keep pushing in on the clutch, or I guess today you can't keep kicking it down in neutral. Because if you do that in your spiritual walk, you begin to lose a little power. You begin to move, lose a little bit of energy. All of a sudden, the things of God are not quite as exciting. It's like a cold, rainy day on Sunday morning. You just want to roll over, Tom, and go back to bed. But you can't do that. And so what I want to do is give you three things quickly this morning, okay? That my prayer will challenge you to stay engaged in the Christian life, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, okay? Paul, Corinth was an unusual place. They had been saved out of uh, real rank paganism. Now, when you're saved, gang, you're forgiven, right? But you're still who you are. I mean, you're not perfect. So you bring in where you've been, the only difference between you and a lost person is God's grace has saved you, but you're still as bad as they are. Somehow, I don't understand how we can be arrogant when it took a cross to save us, you know. And so this church got on fire for God, but they were wrestling through some of the issues of life, issues of the Christian life. And so Paul writes, uh, actually, probably three letters. We have two. And he's trying to help them wall through some of the things. Well, he gets on, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, he gets on the subject of spiritual gifts. Now, a spiritual gift is something that God sovereignly gives to you when you're saved. Uh, a spiritual gift is an ability, a supernatural ability, to serve God and honor God in the church, okay? Uh, and let me strongly uh, uh, second that to you, okay? A spiritual gift is an ability to use in the body of Christ that God gives to you to serve Him and glorify Him in the body of Christ. 
And so Paul explains that to them in verse 12. He'll, he'll follow it up in, 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 uh, in chapter 12. He follows it up in chapter 14, but he knows that there's a danger that when someone gets a little power, it goes to their head. And that's what was happening. They began to see what these spiritual gifts were, what they had, and they began to think that they were something that they were not, and it kind of went to their head. And so Paul divinely inserts a chapter between 12 and 14 to talk about some very precious virtues, love prominent there. And he talks to them about that if you have love, you can handle all the challenges of life. If you don't have love, you're not going to handle many of the challenges at all. I'm under this persuasion that if we get the three virtues he talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 down right, then gang, our church, your marriage, the raising of your children can be handled properly. If we don't get them down right, in the midst of all the challenges that we have, Marriages have a few challenges, isn't that right? Churches always have a few challenges. Any relationship always has a few challenges with it. Raising kids has some challenges. I'm so glad my kids are gone. Wednesday, we were standing out over in the kids' area, the gym, and a lady came walking up, and, and someone said, man, it's so precious. It's so good they have, I think, seven kids. And I said, what? And I said, there's nothing good about seven kids, you know. But if you stay engaged, if we can clamp on to these three things, then I think we can make some progress. We can chug. We won't keep sticking our foot on the clutch and kicking it out of gear. We'll keep on marching. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, there's only one verse. So I'm going to let you stay seated, but don't go to sleep, okay? Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now I want you to lock with me for a moment on that word abide. Faith, hope, love, abide. The word abide means to endure, it actually is a word which means to, to stay under, to hang in there, okay? And gang, I'm telling you, out of all these years of ministry and after being married for over half of my life, I'm telling you, you better have a little faith. You better understand a little bit about hope, and you better have a whole bucket full of love if you intend to make it God's way, Okay? So let's start with faith. And here's what I want to say to you first of all. With faith, you've got to stretch it. You need to stretch your faith. And let me tell you what I mean by that, okay? As a believer in Christ, you have to keep your eyes on Christ regardless of the way the wind is blowing in our country, regardless of the way the wind is blowing in our culture. Beloved, Christianity has always been radical. Christianity has always been countercultural. God's ways have always been in conflict with the world. We've never walked with 
dance with the world. God tells us to come out and be distinct and be separate. And if we're going to engage with Christ, then we cannot be blown by the winds of adversity that come. And there's a lot of winds today. I, you remember um, a few weeks ago, I, I was going to begin a series on Hebrews 11. You remember that? And I, I felt God, I really felt God pull me off of that. And we spent about three weeks with David and Bathsheba. You remember that painful thing, you know? Well, I, I, I knew God pulled me away for that. I didn't realize why necessarily until now because next week I'm going to start a series on faith. I wasn't ready for it. And there's some things going on in my life with the area of faith that God has so stirred my heart at and I think that if I had tried to get ahead of God there, it wouldn't have gone as well as I think it's going to go. Partly, I went to an eight-hour pastor prayer meeting. Eight hours. Four hours on Monday night, four hours on Tuesday morning. That had an incredible impact in my life. I learned some things about Tom. I learned some things about my role as a pastor. I learned some things about faith in Jesus Christ, how you're to keep your eyes on Christ, regardless of the winds of adversity that blow. And beloved, listen to me, I'm going to... I want to encourage, I know you can't come every Sunday. Well, you can, you just won't. But I want to encourage you to come next Sunday for sure because I'm going to kick this thing off. And I'm going to share some things about faith and, and some things about going on in our culture today that's absolutely going to shock you. It might scare you a little bit initially, but if you'll hang with me over the course of several weeks, I believe it'll encourage you. Let me, let me just kind of whet your appetite a, a little bit. We've always said because we want to hear it. We don't like bad news, first of all, right? And so we, we like to hear things, statistics that tell us that we are a powerful force in our culture. And so sometimes you'll hear some guys get up and say things like, there are 70, our, the United States of America is a Christian nation. That's wrong, we're not. Okay? That's okay. But gang, we're not. You'll hear people say, well, we're 70% we're Christian. That doesn't sound right anyway, but that's not right. Then sometimes you hear someone say, well, we're about 40% Christian. That makes us feel good, but we're not. The latest statistics, empirical data, I believe correct, okay, indicate to I when they cut away all this I'm a Christian in name only and all this kind of... When you get down to the, to the brass tacks, the fact of the matter, gang, is we're about a 7% Christian nation. Now, if we're only 7%, that tells you that we're not in the majority anymore. We're in the what? Yeah. That means that there's not as many as us as we think. We're not nearly as powerful as we think. We're not nearly as influential as we think. That's not bad because God has always used the minority, okay? Hang with me. But we're not nearly as strong as we think we are. And if we are going to stand against the winds, we better stand keeping our eyes on Christ and we better stand faithful to the Word of God and the things of Christ. Therefore, we have to stretch our faith. Our philosophy has never been the same as the world. 
Our standards have never been the same as the world. Our values have never been the same as the world. And the challenge today is that while we see a shrinking number of bona fide true believers, we see an exploding number of anti-God-isms in the world. You're going to hear me say next week, now the Christian community is the enemy compared and in the eyes of the world. Andrew. Andrew's a Christian counselor. Andrew, there's going to come a day. Let me back up a minute. If we're 7%, then you need to know that the strongest faith people is a generation ahead of me. The second strongest faith generation, Betty, is the group of us following. When the oldest leave, Larry... <laughs> Not Kathy, she's part of my group. Oh, is there just some older folks? When that generation leaves, when my generation leaves, we're going to be about 2%. I'm already telling my next week's sermon. You've got to come anyway. In the next 10, maybe it's 20 years, it's forecast that 70% of the contributions that are given to a church will dry up. 70%. Andrew's a Christian counselor. Andrew, there's going to come a day when someone comes to you that's struggling with their sexuality. And Andrew, they're going to come to you and they're going to say, I don't like this. I don't think it's right. I want out. And if you try to lead them out biblically, you're going to be breaking the law and it'll be illegal. It already is in California. Do you know that? Yeah. There is this idea going around that being a Christian and living the Christian life is mental illness. Hello? That it's going to be, if we stand on biblical values, that we're breaking the law. Now, we don't want to hear, here's what we want to do. Leave me alone. Let me raise my babies. But gang, we're living in a culture like that. I'm telling you, it's not bad. You'll hear me next week say this isn't bad because the true blue believers in Jesus Christ will be gathered together. We're going to stand for the cross. And God has always glorified, glorified himself in times of challenge. So don't go away being negative here. But you need to go away in reality. How in the world, then, do people who are born of faith stand against these winds? We stand in faith. We have our faith stretched. Now, gang, listen, that doesn't mean that you have to be mean, but it means you've got to be real. And you've got to decide what is real and what is not real. As we stand against homosexuality, we don't need to stand mean against that. We need to help explain why we stand against it. Why we think it's wrong. We need to explain what the Word of God says. Why we believe that it destroys a soul. And it's going to be counter of what's being taught in schools. And counter of what's being taught in government. And in our courts. But we've got to stand and be able to explain it in a way that makes sense to people. We don't kill them for that. 
when it comes to abortion. We must, and do you know that, that, that we've had around 50 million abortions in our nation? We're approaching the number of all people that was killed in World War II. And as we stand in a rising culture of God, anti-Godism, we're going to have to figure out how we explain why we're against, not just blow up the abortion house. We don't do that. But they need to hear from us why we think, why we think that's wrong. We've got to show our children that we fight for our marriage when things get tough. Because things get tough. We got to show them that we're tougher than problems. Because when we show them that we're tougher than the problems in our marriages, it makes them tough. And it brings security into their life. They can grow up secure in the love of mother and dad. We've got to teach them by what we say and how we live. Now listen, not just what we say, but how we live, that our standards, our godly standards, that places value on what we believe, that places value and security in their lives. They desperately need to hear us and see that. You see, gang, we better have some value very securely in place as time marches on to the return of our Lord. I don't have a clue when Jesus is coming. But I can tell you it's closer than it's ever been before, right? And so as this culture, wind of adversity begins to blow, we've got to stand strongly in faith. Is it easy? No. Is it required? Yeah, it is, parent. I remember this last Olympic, there was an interview with, I, I think it was a girl on a skating, I'm not sure, but it was an athlete. And you know, the, those skaters, for example, they get up before the Lord does every morning, and they, they practice for like five hours. Then they go to school and they come back and practice. It's crazy life. And someone asked, I think it was a lady skater, someone asked her, What's the hardest thing about getting ready for the Olympics? You know what she said? Getting out of bed. Huh? Is it easy? No. Is it required? Well, yeah, she had to get out of bed. Is it easy living the Christian life when winds are... No, but it's required. Furthermore, let me mention one other thing. We need to allow our faith to be tested and stretched. It's going to be tested anyway, but there ought to be some things in your life that can only be defined as God doing something. You see, we're not normal. We've never been normal. There's nothing about the Christian life that's normal. I made a statement to someone, and I'm not a theologian, so I, you know, if a professors were there, he'd probably meet me after church and say, dude, I need to talk to you wrong, and maybe I am. But God's been doing some things in my life lately, and, and I made a statement to, uh, to someone. I said, you know... Um, God is not logical, and I believe he's not, okay? If he was logical, gang, I would have never surrendered to the ministry 30 years ago. 
I would have never given up my job. I would have never sold my home that we had built. I would have never loaded up my wife and teenage daughter and a boy and went off to something that sounded so strange. I would have, God's, God's not logical. God lays upon a heart of a man. God calls people to follow him in his kingdom. It doesn't have to be logical because his ways are above our ways. He sees things that we don't see. He sees the, the end from the beginning. He sees what he wants to do five years down the road in your life, and he's getting you ready for that right now. So it can't always be logical, you see. And so there ought to be some things in our life that define us by our faith so that when God demonstrates himself and when God does do some things, all we can say is, man, this was a God thing. We're at a spot in our church, Don, aren't we? Now, we've got to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. We don't have all the answers, but I can tell you it's going to be something different. I mean, I know some folks are not here today. They're sleeping in, but we, we're running out of room. What are we going to do to reach the 60% of the people in Saline County that claim no religious connection? What are we going to do to reach the 50 and the 5-mile, 80 and the 8-mile radius? Of our, of our church, you see. There needs to be some things done. That when they get done, it can only be explained as the hand of God on our church, hand of God on your family, and the hand of God on your life. Only truth sets us free, right? So I believe that if you're going to be stretched in your faith, then you're going to have to be people of courage. It takes courage. As today as never before, it takes courage to stretch your faith. Okay? Secondly, notice he says in verse 13, hope. Not only stretch your faith, but live your hope. Now, in the Bible, hope is not some kind of a wish. It's not some kind of pie-in-the-sky desire. It's not some kind of uh, sitting around and wishful thinking. When we talk about hope in the Bible, we're talking about confidently expecting God to do what he says he will do according to the word of God. Sad is the person that lives with no hope. In fact, they're not living, they're dying one breath at a time. You've got to have hope to live. I, I want to give you a definition that I came up with. You can throw it away as soon as we're through. But here's my definition of hope. Hope is that light. That as you move forward, while looking around, all is dark. That when you get there, you know it's the right place because God is there. Hope is that light that you move toward when everything around you is dark, knowing that when you get there, God's already there. See? Hope's crucial for a believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, it may be dark all around you, but there's a flicker of light. And it's the light that draws you. And when you get there, you find that God is light. I want you to turn for, for a minute, Romans 15, one verse in Romans 15. In our prayer conference, uh, a guy used this verse, and I thought, ooh, that's what I'm preaching. So I copied it down, okay? Romans 15, 13. Just, just a few pages back to your left, okay? 
Romans 15, 13, listen to what Paul writes to the church at Rome. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, and the God of hope, notice, fill you all joy, peace, in believing, which is faith, for this purpose, that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, as I look back over my life, hope was the very thing that kept me from quitting. When the road was rough, when the way was dark, when the path was crooked, and it seemed that it would never end, hope said, Tom, you're going to make it. And when you get there, it'll be worth it. Because that's where God is. You see, when I focused on me, I wanted to quit. But when I focused on him, I said I can make. Hope lives for tomorrow. Hope lives for what is yet to be, believing that it is now. That's what our subject will be beginning next week. Okay. By the way, with Bible programs today, search programs, if you take the word hope in the New Testament and begin searching, you'll find that hope produces purity in your life. And I want to be pure as my Lord is pure. Hope produces perseverance because it keeps you going. Because you know when you get there, God will be there, and he'll reward you. Hope produces peace because the Prince of Peace is coming. Okay? So we stretch our faith, we live our hope, and then we touch our love. Paul says as important as faith is and as important as hope is, there's one virtue more important than all the rest, and that is you touch with your love. Now, beloved, I understand some of you are not touchy-feely, okay? I, I, I am. I, I'm a touchy-feely guy. Some of you are not. I understand that. But when it comes to your family, you touchy-feely anyway, okay? You may not want to touchy-feely guys. You may not want to touchy-feely other people. And if you touchy-feely, you got to learn how to do it right. You know, I'm a hugger, so i got to bend over that way. It looks kind of weird. My rear end's sticking out, and I'm going like this. Because I want to hug the right way because I like to hug, you know. But even if you're not a touchy-feely, you better touchy-feely your family because they desperately need it. Kids need to be touched. Adults need to be touched. I want to tell you something. I've told this to you before. Uh, so to some of you, it'll be redundant. That's what old people do. They say the things over and over again. My son tells me, Dad, you already said that. I did? Yeah, you said it six times. I said, well, I'm going to say it again. I'm dad. I can do it. So I know I've said this to you. Several years ago, uh, one of our widows came to church. She'd been sick, and she hadn't been able to come for a while. And uh, I, uh, I saw her at church, and I thought, oh, how cool to see her. So I, I went up to her, and I, I put my arm around her, and I, I hugged her. I called her by her name, and I said, oh, Gosh, I've missed you. It's so good to see you. And that was all. A little bit later, she came back up to me, and she said, uh, thank you. And I'm thinking, all right, what for? She said, for touching me. And I, and I, I said, what? You know what she said? 
Nobody touches me anymore. Her husband was gone. Nobody touches me anymore. People need to be touched. You can touch an elbow. You can touch a shoulder. You can send a card. You can make a call. My goodness, we're in social media today. Text it. You know, email it. Twitter it. Flickr it. I don't, you know, there's so many of those things. I don't understand them all. But please, please touch. Everybody needs to be touched. Especially those to whom God has put in your charge. You read this chapter, chapter 13, you, you find some things about love that Paul talks about. He, he first of all says it's permanent. Love's permanent. It never fails. Things will fail. You'll make mistakes. Seasons come and go. But love never does. Love's patient. Love endures, he says. Gang, listen. Um, you know why I'm so proud about Indian Springs? One of the reasons. I'm, a lot, I'm proud a lot of you guys. But you know one reason I'm so proud of you? is because you've allowed me over these 18 years now to make mistakes. Some people won't let you make mistakes. Um, I've pulled some boners, huh? Amen, Rich? You know, a few. That's what I'm talking about, baby. Uh, but you've let me. It's cool to be allowed to make mistakes, you see. Love's perfect. Makes life complete. Love's preeminent, he'll say, because you see, God is love. And God is to be preeminent. If there's one thing every relationship needs, if there's one thing that every relationship needs to have firmly set as the foundation, is that love must abide. Every marriage needs it. Every church needs it. There has to be, when the winds come, there has to be that moment when that spouse that's in a turmoil with their spouse will say, but he or she loves me. There has to be that moment when the teenagers and the kids, when they're in trouble, will say, but you know, daddy, mommy, love me. There has to be that moment when parents are about to pull their hair out that are able to say, you know, but the kids, love me. There has to be a moment in a church where the people know the pastor loves them and the pastor knows the people love them. And if that moments don't happen, then ministries end. Faith requires courage. Hope requires confidence. Love requires compassion. And so, gang, stretch your faith, live your hope, and touch your love. And if the kids are sick at midnight, don't call me, okay? Call your neighbor, all right? Let's bow our heads. Stu's going to come for just a moment. Not easy taking God's kids that are loaned for a while. Not always easy to do that. But there's a moment when you give them back and you move on. We're going to take a moment and pray and stand. Maybe today you need to pray. Maybe your marriage is in challenge or you're...
the pressure. I, I, I tell you guys, my prayer for you is you'll stand strong with the wind, against the wind. Ladies, my prayer for you, mamas, don't give up. Our world today makes fun of you, casts insults to you, but I want to tell you, you're the most important person in the relationship. Dad's got to stand. Dad's go, so go the family. I understand that. But there's got to be a glue. There's got to be someone that, that, that crystallizes it. And Mama, it's you. Can I ramble a minute? How much time? Oh, I got four minutes. Let me tell you a story. I was in, I was in, um, I was in college. And uh, my first year in college, sick as a dog. And I'm, I'm like 18 years old. I'm actually starting to shave a little bit, you know. And I get sick. And my roommate came, what do I do? What do I do? And you know the only thing I could groan out? I want my mama. 18 years of age. Have you ever noticed when kids get sick, who do they want? They want mama. Why? Because God places within the kids the need of mama, you see. Well, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, whatever you want to do, we do for your glory right now. In the life of these pure people, these families, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's